welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicagoland, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Thanks for joining us in our Great Communicator series, where we talk with some of the top church leaders in the country about how to be effective preachers and teachers. This week, we're hearing from Reverend Dr. Charlie Dates. Charlie became the youngest senior pastor at Progressive Baptist Church of Chicago in 2011 at age 30. He teaches preaching at Wheaton College and serves as an affiliate professor of Truett Theological Seminary and Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Charlie's a widely sought-after preacher and teacher, and he's also one of the featured speakers at Amplify Outreach Conference coming October 18th and 19th. Amplify Outreach is designed for pastors and church leaders passionate about engaging with real issues of our day in order to help people discover authentic faith in Christ. So be sure to learn more about the conference at AmplifyOutreach.com. And also, we want to remind you that you can check out extended portions of some of our interviews at ChurchLeaders.com plus. And if you're enjoying our interviews, it would help us if you left a review. But first, let's hear from Ed Stetzer, Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and Executive Director of Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. So excited to have a conversation with Charlie Dates, who's, well, you've already heard the introduction, is uh, just gifted in multiple ways and really a key part of our conversation because not only does he um, preach and one of the great communicators, but also he teaches preaching. Uh, Fresh here at Wheaton College and our graduate schools, other places uh, as well. <laughs> <laughs> you like how I work that in there? Other places yeah. as well. Um, so so, um, so let's talk some about preaching and the, the art the, the, the science and all of the above, because part of what we're conversation we're having, Charlie, is around compelling preaching. Yes. And, uh, you know, because there's technical people, some, some people can have technical expertise in preaching, yes. but we're trying to say, what does this compelling preaching look like? So I guess the first question is, what makes preaching and teaching compelling? And if I could press a little bit, what makes yours compelling? But let's start in general, and then I want to press a little bit, what makes yours compelling, do you think? Yes. So uh, Paul writes, knowing the fear of God, we persuade men and women. That's one of those great lines in the New Testament that speaks to the effect preaching ought to have. It is, in a real sense, the art and science of persuasion, but not in a rhetorical format only. It's really, as you know, the gospel truth is the greatest message we've ever known. So in the history of preaching, Uh, I think you and I would discover some overlap in the history of rhetoric and persuasion and uh, the art of communication. And so there are components that makes preaching compelling. And I'll just try to identify, say, maybe three or four. Please. One of them is, uh, and all of this is under the banner of persuasion, but where the proverb writer says something like, there's nothing in a real sense more beautiful than apples of gold or trays of silver. Uh, a fit word aptly spoken is is like that. I, I think what makes preaching compelling is when it's a right now word. Mm-hmm. That preaching needs to be a word from God to a particular people at a particular moment in history. It It cannot be mere exploration of history or or examining an idea. No, I think what makes preaching compelling is when people sit there and hear it and they go, oh my goodness, that that's right where life is. That's the that's first thing, um, under the banner of persuasion. The second thing is, 
and I'm not ranking these in, in priority, but the second second thing is, is that the person preaching it is believable. Okay, so I don't know that when you talk about the art and science of preaching that you can separate the message from the messenger or you can separate out the communicator. Uh, I forget, and I often forget this. I, you think I'd remember it by now, but uh, one of the early American fathers who was not a believer went to go hear uh, somebody preach. I think it was like Whitfield or somebody, right? Went to go hear Whitfield. And, and they had no microphones, Ed. They had no amphitheaters, just people on horses racing to these areas, these large fields to hear the preacher. And they asked this early American father, well, why do you go? Like, we all know you don't believe. And his response was, yeah, I don't believe, but he does. Hmm. And and I I like to hear somebody <laughs> who actually believes. And it is said of some of the early American noted uh, church preachers that it it was their sen- sense of, of ethos, as it well, was, that combined with pathos that made them believable. So when you get a right now word, that is a clear proclamation of the word of God spoken specifically to where life is right now from a person who you can tell believes it, like it grabs it, that marries together something that is very moving and attractive. I use the word burden. So you can tell when a preacher has a burden, when, when there is that they're not doing this for fame. They're not doing this for a paycheck. They're not doing this for their own status. They, this, this is on them. Um, I, I think that's significant. So uh, one, one more, and this should go without saying, all right, but I'm going to say it. It's, it's that it's true. Hmm. Uh, there's so much of preaching these days. It's not true. It's not, it's not honest. It's not biblical. It cannot pass theological muster. And so it doesn't matter how compelling, how persuasive, how dynamic and believable you are, if the very words you are communicating are not the very words of life, then you're just a good talker. I think what makes what makes people pound the table and we reach for their things and want to experience life change is that they they hear from the Holy Ghost. They they hear from God because it's true. And so those are those are three things under the banner of persuasion that I would wear together to say make for compelling preaching. Okay, so so one of the things you talked about this uh, conviction that he believes it. You know, using that example, yeah. he believes it. Yeah. Um, most preachers I know believe it. Well, I mean, and might be sometimes when we're kind of going through the motions, and I, I get that and I receive that. How do you make sure that people know that you believe it when you're preaching it? I don't know that there's a formula, Ed. What I can tell you is that I am gripped by the message I'm holding. I I am convicted personally. And in the way that God has wired my personality, I know how cognition affects emotion and how emotion needs cognition to function. And I read that in scripture over and over again. So I am not afraid in the preparation of preaching to invite the Holy Spirit to clean my own heart as I am mining that passage and building a sermon. And some of that leaks out while I'm preaching. I'll just be honest with you. It it is more often than not a sense of conviction and weight that I feel in the preparation 
that when I get there, I tell on myself. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it's not that the word even per se is cutting everybody else. It it cuts me first. And and there is something and I don't know if you've ever sat with like a a uh, professor before you were one or or with a mentor or even with a counselor where when you were walking through the material you got the sense that they felt what you feel that they had been where you are that that when they spoke with you about it it was it wasn't from mental knowledge it, it was a bit of experience too and uh, that doesn't mean that I got experience everything I preach about but it but it does mean that, that in my preaching, what resonates with me, what grabs my heart, I believe, reaches the heart of other people when I'm communicating divine truth. Makes sense. So um, when you're teaching preaching, you yes. know, you, you, I've seen you teach preaching. I've been in the class when you teach preaching. Um, one of the things we heard, we did some focus groups as part of this kind of exploration of great communication. And we actually talked to some professors of preaching who were pretty much um, close to unanimous that what they teach in the classroom is skills. And the challenge is, is that sometimes people don't even grasp those skills until they're out of the classroom. So yeah. particularly those, uh, one professor was at a, you know, three-year seminary, residential seminary, people come in and he said, you know, I teach, I have for two classes, but I know that it's going to be two years out of seminary before they even start thinking about it, maybe going back to the notes about what this looks like. So how do you teach preaching in such a way that preachers are, uh, we want them to be technically skilled, we want them to be theologically grounded and bi biblically anchored. Where does it fit though to be that compelling communicator as you teach it or can you teach it? Yeah, I think you can, okay. uh, but I, I would, I'd be remiss and I didn't say this earlier, if I did not say it, it's my conviction that preaching is a calling and not okay. everybody who takes a class is called. Okay. So I'm already fine when I walk into a classroom knowing everybody in here is not going to get it. Some people pick preaching. That's a dangerous exercise. I think preaching needs to pick you. You need to have, and I know I'm using this axial in an axiom kind of way, axiomatically, but I'm. you need to have a kind of fire shut up in your bones response to preaching, meaning I can do nothing else but preach. Yeah, I could manage a target or I could manage a hedge fund or I could be a contract negotiator, but I am constrained. And I look for students in the classroom who are constrained. They turn out to be the best preachers, not the people who can just kind of take the formula I'm giving and apply it like a newscaster. Now, I'm looking for somebody who weeps because it, it grabs them. And when I find that, um, I invest deeper time there. So in the classroom, though, yes, I, I am teaching skills, but I'm also in the lab portion. This is really critical. It's not just the classroom side where you're putting everything up on the dry erase board or the books you're reading. But when you get to the actual lab and you're sitting there with other students and you're listening to a student preach, I am working while they're preaching to pull out of them what, what may be in there. So somebody would say, how is that? I'm egging them on while they preach. Mm. Yes. Say it. Not, oh, mm. <laughs> and if there is a response, kid you not, if there's any kind of response to where they kind of anchor into the text a bit more, into the preaching moment, lean in it, let their personality flower more. I saw that in our preaching class in Florida some years ago, uh, where guys who their churches do not respond to them. 
while they preach. In that room that day, they got a taste of that. And oh, it was could, fun to watch. You yeah. could you could feel the preacher coming yeah. to the fore uh, in them. And so uh, th- that's something, and I want to be careful in how I say this, that's something that cannot be taught. Intimate. That part right. cannot be taught. But you can give a growing, budding preacher in the classroom a sense of freedom, that it's okay to let your personality and your burden show. And it can't be taught, but it seemed to be exhorted. Yeah. You were exhorting it. Yes. You, you, but you can't teach it, but you, you, there's something to draw it out. Yes. Yes. Okay. So in a, in a classroom, which I think the church has been very often, mm-hmm. the congregation, you know, shapes young preachers in that regard or beginning. Group, it, they, they draw it out of you. And so you, you also, though, Manuel Scott, that great uh, black Baptist preacher from a bygone era, used to say uh, that it is caught and taught. Mm. That that there is a sitting under that kind of preaching, that you catch something, and that's true. It's the it's the apprentice model. You you can like you know the Stradivari. You talk about how he made these uh, violins, and and people wanted to know how did you. He said it's all in the selection of the trees. So they said, well, what do you look for in the trees? He couldn't explain it, but when people walked with him and heard him thump the tree and listen for the reverb, they learned how to pick the kind of wood. That's what I think in preaching we we need more of. You got to sit with somebody who knows how to thump trees. Mm. And you and can I've learn. Seen you, you know, we, we were down at your church last time. I met your yeah. um, interns. Were they were they preaching interns, pastoral interns? What did you call them? They were summer interns, but they got summer it all. Yeah. They got it all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so you're investing in the next generation of preachers and teachers uh, through internships like that. But the reality is most people who learn preaching learn it in a classroom, not in a relationship. So if you could wave a magic wand and to churches, now again, your, your church is, is larger than most churches, so, so it'll have you know re- resources to bring in people, some are interns. What would you suggest? I mean, how can churches be the kind of preacher-making places that, that sometimes we hear some of the best stories, even in this great communicator series, we've heard stories of people who somewhere got a got a passion, got a vision, got some experience preaching, and then grew into the great communicator they are. So what advice would you give for pastors wanting to raise up preachers? I think I would push back just a little bit here, Ed, in in the sense that some of our best communicators never went to school. Okay. And school has messed up a number of them. That doesn't mean that it cannot be right. But I think of um, Beth Moore, is she in the series? I, I don't know if, if Beth Moore uh, formally did any preaching classes. Oh, no, she was actually whatnot. the example I was giving. She she kind of talked about her experiences in relationships with others who she observed, things of that sort. And one of the finest communicators in the world, yeah. you know, um, the guy who I, I wrote about uh, in my PhD studies, uh, Donald Parson. You got many others. You, I'm, I'm sure Jasper Williams to some degree. Uh, C.L. Franklin is another uh, where school did not shape them into the preachers they were the church did right but but they had that that burden that they brought over so anyway but there there comes a time like I was sent to school I was encouraged to go and it wasn't because I didn't have a gift it's because the church they saw something that I hope is manifesting now that I did not know and that is when you put the learning and the burning together, 
it creates a kind of combustible pastorate that they really can shape a church and its city. And so I, I would say that that going to school helps, but it helps like jazz. Are you into jazz, Ed? No. Okay. So in jazz, there is a structure that the musician is playing, has to hold on to. School gives you that structure. But what makes a kind of Wynton Marcellus or Bradford Marcellus or, or even a uh, Brian Stevenson in, in this regard is that they know how to move within that structure to play notes and to fill in tone and tunes in a way that make the piece. It is, it is tradition. It is true. It is the old story, but it's innovative and it's alive and it's compelling. And so I think if I had to wave a magic wand in this era of technology, I would say we we have the greatest gift to listen to some of the best communicators from all over the world at our fingertips. And I would start there by sitting at the feet of some of the best communicators online listening. Yeah. And then I would marry that with the structure that is required because people do listen, right? Pe people listen. Some people listen linearly. Some people listen narratively. Uh, so, some people listen um, in kind of shock and awe settings, as it were. There's no like one great way alone of doing preaching. There's there's a swath of it. But if you can learn the structure, then you can take from that structure the bones you need and pull from great influences, nuances that help you to develop until you get your own voice and your own rhythm. Learning and burning together. I like I like that phrase. Uh, but I do want to press a little bit on the question, though. So the question oh, yes. was, what can churches Sorry do? Yeah. No, no, no worries. No worries. It's a free-flowing conversation. We've been friends a long time. What can churches do to uh, raise up, to facilitate that learn? You know, let's let's put the school out of it. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, in your case, your church, you the, the interns I met this summer were all from different schools, right. but that's not always the case. So how do we raise our preachers and how does the church become a place for the learning and burning to mix together? So the simple answer is, I think the church needs to create within its local context systems that get the right people to the pulpit at the right time. So there has to be an identification but we're talking about this right now at Progressive. How do people who feel called to preach self-identify? Mm -hmm. And then once they do, and we've done this many times at Progressive, because you don't need a school to do this. There's a small cohort that develops with the pastor, where the pastor sits down with these persons who feel called to preach and walks through areas of life, spiritual maturity, uh, the kind of backside, the inner development of the preacher's life, and then introduces them to the mechanics of preaching. And there are a selection of books that anyone could read on whatever spectrum you're in. You got, you know, Haddon Robinson, Kenyatta Gilbert, uh, Brian Chappell, Jared Alcantara. You got a number of these texts you can take and work your way through the kind of nuts and bolts of preaching and then require that those persons in that cohort start to turn in messages on passages you've determined. So in our labs, I don't just let people pick passages. Uh, we vary it up intentionally. So we'll take a piece of history, poetry, uh, gospel, whatever. And then we get together in a smaller group in the sanctuary. So this is live. We go to the big old sanctuary. Yeah. But it's only eight or nine of us in there. And we spread out and we, we throw the clock on and we let that preacher 
get to it. Let me tell you now what a gift this is. I have been in this environment before because I hear any and everybody before they get up. to. I've been in this environment before and have heard preachers and said to myself, that person has Hmm. and then released them to the church and the church had the same response that I did. And then from there, the church takes it over. So you, 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 once you, you get like the preaching lab on its own, and then you give them an opportunity to exercise that gifting in front of the church, the church has a way of refining it. And so what I do from there is I start to put people in environments where they have regular teaching, writing opportunities, and then more uh, iteratively put them up in front of the congregation for preaching. Now, where, when is that Sunday morning or do you do it at other events you create or how does that work? Yeah. So the labs are usually for us, they've been on Saturdays. When right, the labs, but I mean, are there and times then, when you put the interns in front of the congregation, oh, yeah. I guess? Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. So that once I, once I'm comfortable right. saying that this person can handle that moment, then I schedule them to preach. And at times it has been like an afternoon service. We would, sure. we would pull together, especially if it's somebody's first time, right, we right. pull together a special service for that and put them up. And then there are other times where, like, we had a kid with us this summer, man. He, he could have held it down on his own uh, a Sunday morning. And so we'll just put them right there on Sunday morning uh, on their own. Yeah. And at least, so here's the deal about the church, too. So that's one thing, like, pastors and, and the church at large can think about. But the church has to curate the environment when the preacher gets up. And this is where the church I grew up in was so good. Uh, I go back and listen to some of those early sermons of mine, and I wonder how did anybody sit through any of that? But they were so nurturing and encouraging and affirming. They listened for potential. They listened for what would be, not just the kind of in the raw. And so people prayed for me while I stood up there to preach. And then they commented when it was over. Can you believe hmm. that? Oh, and sometimes really well. Ed, they would put money in my hands. These oh, wow. old, old chocolate women and some, some brothers, man, they would son, God's hand is on your life. S- stay at it. And those kinds of encouragements drove me to study more. Wow. Cause I wanted to be responsible with them. And yeah. I figured if they appreciated that, Oh, how, how much more would they appreciate if if it were better? And now I go back to that church and uh, by the grace of God, man, some of those people are still there um, and they have memory, uh, which wow. which still nourishes and nurtures me. So that's what I think the like the lay person sitting in the pew needs to understand that theirs is a role as well to nurture and encourage and help yeah. refine. That doesn't mean you write a young preacher, a new preacher a note and tell them everything they got wrong. They use the illustration wrong. You know, people can be hypercritical, not that, but to search the good, to affirm it and watch that preacher grow. Hmm. The, if you went back, you know, you, yeah. what you described when you were younger, you know, that might be a bygone era for a lot of people. That's that young Pentecostal kid comes up, says, God's called me to preach. Uh-huh. And, you know, the church affirms it and then it blesses him. And, and, uh, you know, it helps some sort of connection for may- maybe, you know, maybe there's a calling to whatever different kind of ministry sends sure. him or are off to whatever. Um, that that context seems to have shrunk. So churches, yeah. I think, today are relying on academic institutions to train for preaching. You're getting the learning without the burning. 
Yeah. And so how do we have a renaissance? I mean, I just, I, I, I keep going back to this question and you've already answered some of it, but how do we have a renaissance of local churches raising up preachers? Are there anything else you would say, think of this in your local church? Yeah, I, two or three things come to mind. What, one is what we're doing right now. I, I think when you hear what I'm about to say, it will help. You cannot rely on the academy to identify preachers. It, you just cannot do that. And the moment somebody's going to get that, I feel like revelation and listening to this. And they will say, okay, our church needs to do this. Now, now here's the benefit or one of the practical sides. I think we need to start giving younger people, and I mean like teenagers too, speaking opportunities in our churches. I, I think rather than just kind of having the stage full of adults for, with everything on Sunday, I think we need to tap the children and the teen ministries with opportunities for them to communicate on Sunday at the big stage. You'd be surprised at how people start to distinguish themselves in those moments. And when those young people are given that opportunity, and as people distinguish themselves, then I think the church starts to tap them. Doesn't say to them, hey, you called to preach this, any other, but just starts to give them more opportunity until they can sense and the church can sense, okay, maybe this is what's going on. Sometimes we wait until somebody is 24, 25, and then they all of a sudden have a experience where they want to go to seminary to identify a preacher. When I think God, when you look at the scripture, Jesus perplexed the elders in the temple at 12. Now, Jesus is an extreme example. I get it. But uh, even young Samuel, when he is with Eli, is hearing from God. And Eli has enough discernment to say to a kid, hey, God is calling you. Go back and ask these questions. We have to create Eli and Samuel situations where young people can exercise a gift or can self-identify in, in that regard. If we do not, I think we're catching people too late. Hmm. And, and then what, what hurts my heart is when people start preaching and then they stop. Yeah. Uh, it's like, oh, I wanted to do that. Oh, no, 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 that's not me. No. Uh, I think the younger we can, we cannot help young people identify and see it in them and they see it in themselves, the better off we'll be. So those, those are two things um, that I would say out front, let's change the paradigm in thinking that the church, that the academy is going to do it. No, right. the church identifies preachers and then let's create opportunities for younger people. Now, somebody will say, well, we're, we're, we can do the deal with the younger people, give speaking opportunities to them, fine. But what about the adults? Mm -hmm. I would, I would, this is what we're doing at Progressive. We're laying out in our fall plan a step-by-step -step, process for people who feel called to preach. But we put a heavy emphasis on call. If you feel called, then this is how you self-identify. You write uh, the, the essay that comes to my attention and the associate pastor's attention. We schedule a time, sit together, and then we we forge and form that cohort again. So the bigger the church becomes, the more kind of systematic you have to be about opening that door and then closing that door. So talk to me too about how, I mean, I've, I listened to you preach. Um, when, when, when I preach, um, the tools that I use to preach today 
okay. uh, at the age and stage where I am in ministry wouldn't be available or, uh, you know, a 20-year-old, a 20-year-old Stetzer, I started, Don and I went to Buffalo, planted our first church at 21 years of age. Wow. And I just pretty much preached messages from my heart that yeah. I was affirmed in a local church. I didn't go to seminary. I had an undergrad degree in biology and chemistry, started preaching. Um, later would gain some value in interest of, lang of biblical languages, of preaching expository sermons, maybe working through books of the Bible. But I wouldn't have had the skills, the knowledge to do that yeah. when I was 20. And I, sure. I know you, you, you go to the Greek, you go to, yeah. you, 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 you diagram your sentences. I mean, yeah. so, so what am I telling to that 20 year old who listens to you, uh, sees the education that really undergirds so much of your preaching in such a powerful way, doesn't have that. So what, what am I releasing that person to do? Um, and, and how do I, how do I help them think through? Yeah. You don't yeah. know how to draw from the Greek or the Hebrew here, but God's put on yeah. your heart to be a preacher. Yeah. So I think you answered the question and asking it, and this is a very helpful me. piece. We have to let preachers develop in stages. Okay. So the great A. Lewis Patterson is an amazing preacher priest some of the most amazing sermons we've heard. But one of them he finished and, and a young preacher came to him and said, well, how long did it take you to write that sermon? That's a great question, right? A young preacher wants to know, what do I have to do? How long did it take? And A. Lewis Patterson's response was my whole life. Hmm. There's something that time and, and maturation gives you that you cannot short circuit in that process. Gardner Taylor, uh, the legendary Gardner Taylor says of, his wife, he got up one one uh, at one occasion out of town. He's one of my favorites. And he says, you know, she's been listening to me for 35 years. And I spoke to her this morning and she's given no indication that she's going to stop now. <laughs> and, and, and he goes on to say, but where it happened was he was a young man. I was a young man. And when I finished preaching, she later confessed that she heard potential in the young preacher. This <laughs> this over the years has helped me in. And, yeah. and I'm so grateful for my church because nobody comes to us all the way ready. And when the church sees a young person like the one you just described, and that young person has a desire or an ambition to, to be like what they've heard, we need to applaud that first right. and say, at least you are pointing your trajectory in the right direction. Because there's so much bad preaching out here, right? Sure. That that they could be aiming in a different direction. So we need to affirm that. And then we need to say, no, but at, at your phase of development, you don't need to sound like you have all of this under your belt. Mm. You don't. There's no pressure to sound like somebody who's 40 when you're 24. Uh, what, what we need the 24-year-old to do is to steep in the word of God. And what I mean by steep in the word of God is very practical point in preaching. I do not. Yeah, I'm into the original languages, but if I can tell you the truth, what the original language does for me is it slows me down. Hmm. And and I think when you're 24 or you're 21, you don't have all of that. Steep in the scriptures in a way that slow you down. And that might mean reading that same passage 35, 40 times across maybe four or five different translations. Now, that sounds like a lot of work. Right. But oh, well. I think when you do that, there is a kind of Holy Spirit wisdom that comes into that person's uh, process. 
and it and it starts to meet them at their stage of development. So there's some things that a 22, 23, 24 year old can say about, um, I don't know, Jay-Z and Beyonce. I know they're older now, but uh, or let's say Chance, the rapper uh, or one of something they can see in that that I do not see. And it happened in our lab this summer. The 22 year old kid got up and man, he started quoting some song that I did not know. But <laughs> apparently he was doing it right. And and there we could see he could reach somebody in that way that Charlie Dates could not. And so we celebrate that. And then we say to them that when you steep yourself in scripture, I would I would strongly urge this upon the person who's developing and growing. Learn how to tell stories well. Hmm. All right. This is really important. And one of the ways that you can learn how to tell stories well is to listen to great comedians some of the great comedians have a way and uh, and I don't want to start naming names because I don't want to get us in trouble but they have a way of we'll get of, mail <laughs> <laughs> of of pulling us in telling a story and yeah. delivering a line or two yeah. with great timing if you can learn how to tell stories well and Jesus told a lot of stories by the way if you can learn to do that early on in your development then as that thing stews over time and marinates then your ability to communicate will register with how people live. People love great movies, Ed. They will go sit and watch a two-hour movie, three hours, I guess, if it's Lord of the Rings or something like that, that, compelled by images that move. The preacher who learns to tell stories well early learns to turn ears into eyes. And in that way, again, as they mature and as they grow, they communicate in a way where people hear. The other thing that I would I would say to that that younger person who's aiming to to do that is, yeah, you might not have the time and the education and all of that stuff under your belt, but learn to write well, mm-hmm. and learn to write shorter, pithy paragraphs well. Uh, one of the areas where I've struggled in in my development, but I'd lean in hard here. I, I work hard here. Is an economy of words. And and so, you know, Spurgeon has that great line that there's a difference between a lightning bug and lightning. And and so I am aiming in my development as a preacher to strike lightning. And and I have been there. I'll give you one. So um, there's this line that I have have come to love. I'm running a litany through the scriptures and I get to this point, I'm talking about the reliability and sufficiency of scripture. And I get to this point and I, and I said, this happened to Salem too. This is great. I, I said, the Bible is not only a book that we read. You've read a lot of books. This isn't a book that you read. It's a book that reads you. And, and in that moment, it was like the whole congregation. <gasps> and, but it took a, it took a trail and a, and a while to get to that kind of lightning moment where that one line coming at the right time that is true, help people to embrace the reliability and sufficiency of scripture. And so some of those are, you know, pieces that you pick up. I sat with Jerry Vines some years ago and he called it like uh, BJ Tatum down in Champagne uses the same idea. He calls it a sermon chip 
book, but Jerry Vines called it something where you grab these lines from reading and listening over time and you mark them and they become part of your rhythm, part of your vocabulary. And it really does help people to, to sense your potential even more. And it trains your mind terms of how to think about communicating and preaching i hope that answers your question i know no, it does it does and you're okay. but uh, kind of key you got the lightning as you call it but yeah. you had the build up to it so you could see that lightning come yeah. in people are open people are anticipating and it just lands differently that's a that's a skill that you've learned over the years that's not a skill that probably you learned in seminary uh, no it's not so, yeah so let's say something further along this lines because what it, it, we call them runs I would say Runs? to a younger okay. preacher, yeah, de develop these moments in scripture. Priscilla Shire does these well too, where develop these moments in, in preaching where you can lift a theme and run or trace its trail through scripture. S.M. Lockridge, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Lockridge, that's his name, of a bygone era again from California pastor. He has one of these great ones on. Um, line. It's called "That's My Cake." Yeah, you, it's 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 actually come well known outside of the African American preaching context as well. As people can easily find that on YouTube. You find, so these are things that I grew up with, but but you can trace where Jesus is from Genesis to Revelation. Well, in Genesis, he's here. In Exodus, he's there. And you commit that to memory. There are all kinds of runs. Melvin Wade is excellent at these. There are all kind of runs that that you can have. And by the time you take a breath. Right. By the time you get to Psalms and Proverbs, the rhetorical flair yeah. behind the truth is is moving people to ride with you and anticipating the next one until you get to the end. And everybody I mean, it's that the moment is bigger than you at that point. Everybody's into it. They know what you're going to say, but they waiting on you to say it anyway. <laughs> and and I, I do this with our church, you know, where I have uh, I've come to the end of a sermon Ed, and I have. And I said, oh, but there is a name. And I don't say the name. And and I and I run through uh, Abram saw a ram that pointed to this name. You know, uh, Moses stuttered. He couldn't get the name out. And, and David tried to pin the name to music. Isaiah said of the name in poetic fashion for unto us a child of God. By the time I get to. But when you turn past Malachi into Matthew, people are saying to me, just say the name. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're, they're waiting. So those those kind of rhythmic yeah. runs, as yeah. it were, um, really do. There's nothing like preaching, man. There's nothing yeah. like it. I mean, nobody else can quite do what the preacher does. But those runs help to show, man, the church is moving with you or you're dragging them to a place. And when we all see that horizon, that sun seeping over that horizon, oh my goodness, that's a great moment in preaching. Yeah, and it might be, it might feel different in different cultural yes. contexts. You're yeah, in a historic yeah. African American church, but I've done it in white churches though. Ed, yeah, yeah, believe, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Is that I think that that the idea of the rhetorical device there, the building of those things that continue to come back around the point and then coming to the point and then bring the lightning, that that that's preaching in almost every culture. Not not oh, everyone, man. but almost everyone. And certainly most of the listeners here, that would resonate in their cultural context as well. Um, how, how is it different in expository preaching? Um, with, even through the Great Communicator series, we got expository preachers, we've got topical preachers. Um, how is it different um, communicating effectively, drawing people in when you're preaching in different ways? 
Well, I'd be the first to say, although I'm primarily an expositor, that exposition is not the sole way to preach. I, I think that in some circles of evangelicalism today, Ed, we, out of fear, maybe overemphasize uh, this, this, the place of exposition. And when really some of our great communicators down through history, to your point, um, have not been such. And so I try to, believe it or not, weave exposition into which whatever kind of preaching I'm doing, topical, narrative. But but this is because I fundamentally believe that this passage has a point, you know? And if there's a way that I can weave that into the larger story or narrative, then, then I'm doing good. So how is it different? Let me see if I can illustrate. Uh, when George Floyd was murdered, I preached a sermon called I Can't Breathe. And what I tried to do was to trace the theme of wind and breath, from God breathing in the breath of life to what the word of God is, God, scriptures, God breathed, you know, to the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And um, I think it's important to preach those kinds of sermons because sometimes what you're doing is you're helping people to see an overarching theological thread through the scripture rather than just kind of mining for a point in that moment. And so I'm approaching, I, I, I hope I'm getting at your question. I'm approaching the preparation for preaching in a topical sermon, somewhat different than I am, excuse me, in exposition. So in exposition, I, I'm grabbing one passage and I'm trying to go as deep as I can there. Well, in in a topical piece, I'm trying to, to narrate and use a different word, but how this thing functions in this passage, in this area, and here to show a consistent thread throughout scripture and to move the church to towards some belief, towards some action or thereabout. Narrative preaching is probably one of my favorites because uh, you can get to the point by just narrating the story. I tried uh, my best uh, earlier this year to preach the prodigal passage in Luke 15. And my argument essentially uh, was on the way that Jesus sneaks up on heroes in stories to show them that they are not the hero. Hmm. And, and so I, I tried to just tell the story uh, from the angle uh, of this older brother and to make my points as I'm telling the story. Now, I'm not announcing that. Is you know, we do that a lot of preaching. The first thing I see in this text is, or this text does, man, I didn't do none of that. And I think it was one of the better moments of my preaching this year because one, it was quicker, but two, people weren't ready for it to be over. So if, if I'm understanding your question correctly, I'm I'm saying that the, how are they different? They are different in preparation and okay. different in execution. Um, last question. What advice would you give uh, to listeners who are asking, well, how do I uh, improve my preaching? I, I, sometimes I wonder if even the Great Communicator series can be a little intimidating to people. You know, you're talking about telling stories. We got Max Lucado explaining how to tell stories. I mean, that's oh, like, man. yeah, that's a storyteller, right? Yeah. So, um, but I, I want to, for them to hear from you. I, I, I will say that I think you're one of the greatest preachers uh, in America today. And Man, I know I want more you, and more baby. people to, to hear from you, listen to mm -hmm. you, be encouraged by you. Um, and I also recognize that listening to great preachers can be intimidating, but, but what would you say to that preacher? Who's like, you know, I'm, 
I want to be a more effective communicator, but I'm unsure about how to take the next steps. So last yeah. question, what would you say? Yes. Just talk to the listeners and, and help them think about it. Yeah. So before I say next steps, let me just affirm you, preacher, whoever you are listening, you can be. And, and by the grace of God, you will be an even better communicator than you think is possible. It can happen. I, I do think um, that, that a step to take is to accept the way God made you. Mm -hmm. One of the great pitfalls I have wrestled with has been wanting to be like my preaching heroes in a way that I'm not necessarily gifted to be like them. So the sooner you can come to terms joyfully with the kind of personality you have and the way God has built you, the more fun you will have in preaching. So that, that might not be technical, but it is, it's critical. The next thing I would say uh, to you is to submerge yourself in the reading and listening of great sermons. Tom Long has one of those, he has a series of those books, uh, the great community, great preachers today, tomorrow. Uh, you can go online to the classic sermon index and, and stroll through, I, I don't know who put this together, but it is amazing, but sermons from antiquity to, to now take a passage that you're looking at preaching and listen to four or five different sermons on that passage. So it might be somebody who's contemporary living today. It might be some something in an anthology or it might be something online that you read, but immerse yourself in the listening and reading of great preaching. It's critical that I say this though. My advice would be to listen across generations, across ethnicities, across socioeconomic status and men and women. I just, I think I would listen broadly to what is the best. And then I would start to uh, listen to my own preaching. Now, Ed, I don't know if you've, you've ever heard this one or done this, but when you preach, get a recording and, and if you a can video. stomach a it, video a video even better. Yeah. and see if you can stomach it. And if you do that three or four times, what I have learned is over time, you start to actually see what other people see yeah, <laughs> and hear what other people hear. And you can actually refine your nonverbal communication. You can refine your, uh, the, the tonation and you can start to weave in the art where you feel it. Last thing that, that I would say to you might sound bizarre, but I'd start to memorize some poetry. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the best things that, that you can do is to take some of the great poems and poets and take stanzas and commit it to memory. There's something about a preacher being able to reach back in time and from memory, verbatim, piece together lines that lets the listener know they're safe in listening to this communicator. Mm -hmm. So as you memorize, I guess one more thing, as you memorize some poetry, I would say read some short stories Maybe even Leo Tolstoy would be a great place to start. Listen, and we talk about comedians, but but read these stories to find out how the communicator takes the reader on a journey. And over time, I, trust me, I know what I'm talking about. Over time, you will find out that stuff starts to bleed in your own preaching. There you go, Ed. 
Charlie Dates on Compelling Preaching. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Ed. Really appreciate you, brother. You've been listening to Reverend Dr. Charlie Dates. He's one of the featured speakers at Amplify Outreach Conference coming October 18th and 19th. Learn more at AmplifyOutreach.com. Thanks again for listening to the Sessor Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews as well as other great content for ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And again, if you found our conversation today helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments to leave us a review that'll help our ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.